Happy Holidays from the DSR Network. We are deeply appreciative of our members and the year that we've had. To celebrate the holiday season, we are offering a 50% discount on either your first month or first year of membership. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the members-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of December, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month or for the first year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRHOLIDAY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRHOLIDAY. Thank you very much for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Mark Polymeropoulos, and this is DSR Spy Show. Today, I'm very happy to welcome as my guest, uh, Valerie Plame. Also, I might add, has turned into a friend uh, whom actually we just met in our post-agency career days. But Valerie is a former career covert CIA operations officer. She certainly worked to protect America's national security and prevent the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, in particular nuclear weapons. Uh, During her career with CIA, she managed top-secret covert programs designed to keep terrorists and rogue nation-states from acquiring nuclear nuclear weapons. This involved decision-making at senior levels, recruiting foreign assets, deploying resources around the world, managing multi-million dollar budgets, briefing U.S. policymakers, and demonstrating consistently solid judgment in a field where mistakes could prove disastrous. You also, uh, Valerie's also an advisor to, to Starling Trust. She's served on nonprofit boards of the Plowshares Fund, Global Zero, the United Way of Santa Fe County, Penn State School of International Affairs, and the Postpartum Support International. Am I getting everything there, Valerie? Oh, you got the highlights there, Mark. All together. And, and of course, Valerie uh, had uh, a very interesting um, uh, time uh, getting exposed, I think, to the entire planet. And we can kind of talk about that a little bit, but it's a it's a huge honor to have you here today, um, and uh, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Mark. It's always such a pleasure. Um, I'm I feel so grateful that our careers finally crossed, and yes, we've become friends as well as former colleagues. Absolutely. So so I'm actually I'm back in the Washington area. I was up in New Jersey um, for uh, for a couple of days to see my dad. Our, my co-host David Rothkoff is not here. Um, I think he's having some technical difficulties. I apologize that with his computer, but I did want to kind of share one thing. You know, Valerie, David, and I always joke about all of my exploits as I run around and do stuff. You know, whether it's going to Metallica concerts or following the Boston Red Sox. But he will be very uh, happy to note I have here, and our, our, you know, we have our listeners. But I have a black and white cookie that I bought from a great kosher bakery up in New Jersey, and I bought it for David. But the problem is, I've eaten a quarter of it already. So he's not going to get it. So David will be listening, um, and I will enjoy the rest of my uh, my black and white cookie. And so we always start with something uh, uh, pretty pretty light. I, I think the best thing today, because there's so much to talk to you about, we have about 40 minutes. But the best thing to start with is some current events, and that's on on Russia Ukraine. And it's important because I think you'll bring a unique perspective. Um, 
And so given, you know, your, your previous role in running counterproliferation operations, you know, have you been, and, and perhaps do you continue to be concerned that, that Vladimir Putin would ever resort to using a tactical nuke? And I, I, and I raise this because there's a, there's a, a line of thought that perhaps the U.S. didn't do enough for Ukraine because we kind of gave in to this idea of nuclear blackmail. So, you know, what are you, what are your thoughts on that? Um, and then we can kind of dive into, of course, Ukraine's previous decision to give up its nuclear weapons. Sure. Thank you, Mark. Absolutely. To underestimate or to presume that Putin is only bluffing about his nuclear threats would be the height of folly. Um, I wouldn't even want to put a percentage on it, but Putin has shown increasingly that he is extremely focused on him, on he, that he clings to power. He will remain in power. And if he believes that tactical nukes, so-called tactical nukes, would enhance that, uh, he will use them. And I'm, I can, I'm sure those in the Pentagon have written up scenarios in which that would be the case. Um, we, those that have followed him, you know, our former colleague, among others, Rolf Mowat Larson, for the last quarter century, have seen a new Putin and his, and his uh, worldview shift in the last few years. I mean, he certainly dropped enough breadcrumbs. You can look back and go, well, yeah, it's it's uh, the path is obvious. But it wasn't to people who followed him very, very closely. And here we are. It's kind of in, use the S word, it's kind of in a stalemate right now uh, for a variety of reasons. And certainly the uh, what's going on in Gaza has diverted the ro- world's attention, but this is still uh, a, a match, you know, a death match. What's going on in Ukraine as we speak right now? There are men in trenches uh, being killed. I don't know. Obviously, I think by the thousands each day. So I guess the one of the questions that that you know we've pondered. Um, you know, as, as we live up here, I think you're fortunate because you're not living here anymore. But as you live up here in the kind of the foreign policy blob um, uh, around Washington, D.C., one of the one of the questions that really kind of, you know, re- you know, revolved in, in at least my circles was if if, for example, Ukraine was successful in moving towards Crimea, you know, would Vladimir Putin authorize the use of a tactical nuclear weapon? And let's just put this again in perspective of your old. I mean, this was your world in counterproliferation. This is this is the idea of a nation state using a tactical nuke. I don't, I'm not sure we've really kind of uh, put our put our heads around that. But do you think if Ukraine had been successful and actually retaken territory in Crimea, Putin would have actually gone ahead and 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 perhaps considered that that kind of unbelievable scenario? Yes, I do think that that's a possibility. To dis- to dismiss it would be foolish. I think. The Biden administration, Tony Blinken, has been very clear in the consequences of what what possibly then would result in in a nuclear uh, event in such a case. Um, I don't. There is absolutely zero appetite in the United States to have American boots on the ground there. Um, but having NATO behind us and Blinken has done. <laughs> he must be an exhausted Secretary of State. Um, but laying out very clearly uh, consequences for deploying a nuke. And you had mentioned you pa- briefly, of course, Ukraine was persuaded in the breakup of the Soviet Union 
to give up its nuclear arsenal. And I still believe that was absolutely the right thing for Ukraine. It was the right thing for the world. And here's why. There is, I don't, (laughs) I'd be hard pressed to find anyone in Ukraine saying, geez, I wish we hadn't done that because we would have used them on Russia, knowing full well that within about 12 minutes, they would evaporate into nothingness uh, because the retaliation would be so complete from Russia. So uh, right now there, there's asymmetry. You have a nuclear armed state, Russia, trying to chew up and uh, they would say take back territory. And what's, what stands are the, the absolute principles. Uh, no matter what Putin has in his head, his intellectual um, justification for doing this, that, Crime, uh, that Ukraine and Crimea have always been part of Mother Russia. That doesn't matter. They're a sovereign nation state and a a democratically elected one, whether Putin chooses to paint their administration as neo-Nazis. And we have to hold firm to that. It it completely blows my mind and others like yourself that uh, came into the intelligence community uh, as the Cold War was still going on. And you see the Republicans in U.S. Congress backing away from the idea of making sure that Ukraine stays a sovereign nation state and putting forward this notion that somehow <laughs> Putin is a victim is absolutely absurd. Yeah, so you know, there's, a, there's a really interesting piece today in the Washington Post um, that kind of outlines the decision-making on the, uh, regarding the offensive. And, you know, a couple of things came to mind as I was reading it. One, you know, I think it, it shows that the U.S. perhaps didn't do enough um, uh, in, in giving Ukrainians the tools that were necessary. And I think that's a valid criticism. But I think you also have to keep in mind the reason we didn't do that was because of this fear of, uh, of, of escalation. Let me just ask one question that's always that I have no answer for. So what if Putin had done this? You know, what was the response or what would the response be? A tactical nuke goes off in Ukraine. The Russians actually have done that. What is, I don't even know what NATO doctrine is. I don't think it's to respond with any kind of nuclear weapons. I think our, the idea would be to destroy the entire, you know, Russian military in Ukraine with conventional forces. But what is doctrine there? I don't know, Mark. I don't know either. Um, clearly, they, they, ha- they would have crossed a line nuclear weapons, rightly so, should be considered completely unacceptable and immoral in my, and to use it in this case would trigger Russia being completely, it's already a pariah state with most nation states in the world, but it would further alienate them further. And their economy, which is already teetering, um, could in fact be brought to complete collapse. Now, whether that would foment any sort of overturning of Putin, who knows? I mean, Putin has shown an, a, he, a, a tremendous appetite for just throwing bodies into the mall, right? He doesn't care. He's emptied his prisons. And from that perspective, it's like, hey, we've gotten rid of the, you know, the degenerates in our society, uh, but there's uh, hundreds of thousands more of able-bodied men he can continue to throw at this. Um, he, like Louis the Fourteenth, he views himself as one in the embodiment of Russia, and so uh, 
we have we have to do everything we possibly can. The West, we being the West, um, although Europe is in a much more precarious position than we are, to support Ukraine. And yeah, that's the balance, right? What what would have happened if if Putin had used a, a nuke? Um, it just I, I don't want to contemplate that world. That's you know that's why I spent all my years at the CIA right. trying to prevent right. that from happening. So it's, it's a perfect transition now to, to something I think is really interesting is, you know, the more you and I have gotten to know each other, but your views on the issue on, on you know, on uh, nonproliferation um, seem to have evolved from your time in the government. Um, you know, obviously you worked on stop, you worked on stopping rogue regimes from obtaining weapons of mass destruction, but now you're an ad- advocate for the total ban. So, so, so talk about that, that kind of uh, evolution, your journey on this, and then how does that realistically work? What does a total ban mean in the organizations that you, you work with? Because I think it's fascinating. I mean, you have a lot of legitimacy as someone who is a counterproliferation expert, and now you are saying these things, you know, especially nuclear weapons, should be banned entirely. Mm-hmm. Okay, so working for the CIA, my job was in the counterproliferation division, making sure that rogue nation states, terrorists, Black marketeers do not get a nuclear weapon. So in that, you're working, it's very, you're down in the weeds. You're working operationally. You're making sure that nuclear widgets are not going from the country of origin to any one of those bad actors, for instance. And uh, I love my job. Uh, I, I love my career. I love my job. If none of that had happened in 2003, I'd like to still think I would be working on that because there's two existential threats. One, of course, climate change. The other one is the nuclear threat. So I wanted to be able to say for myself, selfishly, like I felt like I did my little piece for that. But once I was out of the CIA and it actually... It, Took a few years first to find my footing, which is a whole other story. But um, the producers of um, uh, uh, Countdown to Zero came to me a few years after I was out. They were making this documentary. It's the same people who did uh, An Inconvenient Truth, that Al Gore movie on. And they're like, we want to do the same thing for nuclear weapons that we did for climate change. And I all of a sudden, I felt like I found my voice again, to speak, obviously, not covertly, but to be able to speak publicly, since I had this unwanted public persona, I might as well use it. And um, that was really the beginning of the second part of speaking about uh, the dangers of the nuclear threat. We're just damn lucky that uh, we have not, a nuclear weapon has not gone off either due to accident or miscalculation. Um, much less intended use. Um, in fact, last night, my husband and I just watched Oppenheimer. Finally, it's streaming. And um, it, oh, it just, it's, it, it just clutches at me. Um, we're, we've just been lucky. So how does, how does a total ban work? You know, yeah. how does, you know, and, and how do you, uh, obviously you have, you know, the nuclear powers, how do you get them to give up weapons, yeah. including of course, our country, which, you know, has relied on this in, in, in our view, uh, you know, in terms of a deterrent value. So how does that, how does that actually work? So a couple things. One, I believe that you need to set an aspirational goal to start, to gather people around you. Much as President Kennedy said in 1960 or 61, oh, we're going to go to the moon. And they're like, ah, but to have that leadership to say, this is where we're going to go. 
you have to start with that. Um, I, I'm not, I am not willing to just throw up my hands and say, well, what are you going to do? I mean, on the whole gun control issue, my husband tends to be on the side of, well, what are you going to do? There's already millions of assault weapons in the United States. I, I just, I'm not willing to go, oh, well, whatever. And it's the same for nuclear weapons, of course, on a global scale. Um, so there's many different organizations from the Plowshares Fund to the Nuclear Threat Initiative that have uh, very thoughtful plans. It's not, it, this is a, this is a process and it has proven, arms control has proven to work in the past. At the height of the Cold War, we were up close to 80,000 nuclear weapons. We're now down to about 13,000. Although as the line in the Oppenheimer movie said last night, you can drown in 10 feet of water as well as 10,000 feet of water, right? Does it matter? You know, but at least you get certain processes and people used to the idea that these nuclear weapons are so freaking costly and they come at, you know, opportunity costs for other things that are all our countries need health, welfare, jobs, education. Um, so these groups that are dedicated to this to get to zero, um, you know, it, it is a process. And I think, um, borrowing from Rolf's comments at my Spies, Eyes and Nukes com uh, conference, You've got to bring China into it. We can no longer pretend that these are uh, the days when China just opened up. They are. They have announced that they are world power, and we need to bring them in as well. I want to see the United States in the lead on these efforts. Um, and so there's nine nuclear states now, but there's many more that aspire to. And you, you need to provide that leadership, and you take it step by step. You just... It's frustrating, it's crazy making, it's really, really hard, but given the stakes, I think it's worthwhile. And do you see either the U.S. political parties getting behind this? Ah, they can, but you know, I mean, it, it, Congress right now is such a dysfunctional place, uh, they could barely get themselves together to uh, expel a fabulist uh, that you know, George Santos. Um, that said, um, this really should, I don't believe it should be a partisan issue. Of course, everything ultimately becomes a partisan issue, it seems right now in this country, but it's not, it is about national security. So what are the number of nukes that we really need to maintain our national security? And people a lot smarter than I am have testified for, to give a number more, uh, several, you know, generals, Pentagon people, all that. It's about 2,500. Um, and in the meantime, the United States, our leadership can take three, I don't want to say easy, nothing's easy in today's politics, but three straightforward steps that would immediately reduce the nuclear tension and announce to the world that we are serious uh, one is end sole authority for nuclear use. That is, it it's it's exclusively in the hands of the president. And when you have an unstable president, <clears throat> that becomes ever more trouble worrisome. The next one is declare sole use, which means 
that we say to the world, the only way that we're going to use nuclear weapons is if we are attacked We defensively. We will never, we vow never to use them offensively. And finally, it's take the ICBMs sitting in a nice Iowa cornfield off, um, off high alert, um, take them off. There is this dogma called launch on warning that if the president is given indication that um, there might be some incoming missiles that we are launched, and once they're launched, they can never be recalled. And furthermore, the, all those uh, silos that you see are nothing more than big old bullseyes. I mean, the Russians know where each and every one is. Uh, we have other ways to defend ourselves rather than ICBMs. You know, as, as you were kind of going over these points, which I think are, you know, should, should give the listeners a lot to think about, uh, I can't help but, you know, reflect on when I just saw Oppenheimer. Um, I don't know if, and the, and the movie is so powerful and it's so visually dramatic too about kind of the evils of, of, of nuclear weapons. Um, I think your comments, you know, should be certainly, you know, kind of put in, uh, in that frame of, you know, people see that, go see that movie. And then you realize, you know, what we have created. And there's, a, there's huge debates on, you know, about, you know, U.S. use of nuclear weapons in World War II. And that's for a, a different time. But, but boy, that movie, and if you see, saw that in, you know, in, in IMAX theater, um, like I did, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty powerful. Yeah, because what comes through, I think, mo- is we're humans. We have foibles. We have flaws. We are deeply, we're deeply flawed. And we're the ones in charge of this thing that could destroy all life as we know it on earth. And that's, we're not smart enough. That's pretty powerful. It's pretty serious. So let's switch just a bit um, to, to something that you and I actually have, in, not only our previous employer, but we have in common, which is, you know, life in the public eye based on events out of your control. <laughs> or for me, based on when I, I had my own kind of health issues and I went public kind of begging for health care. Um, that's not the subject of this today, but, but I think that's something that I, you and I have talked about is what a, what a shock that was, you know, the transition from life as an undercover operative for the agency to then being splashed, you know, across the pages of the entire world. And, and I think you and I certainly bonded on this when we, when we first talked. We, we did. Few people can understand yeah. that profound, unsettling feeling when you spend your entire life protecting your assets. I mean, that's, that's sacred. And part, to protect your assets, you have to protect your cover. Yourself, right? And, um, and that is so crucial to your identity. And then all of a sudden through, as you, <laughs> the events out of our control, right. um, you are thrust into the public eye and it, it, I'm pretty sure I was more or less in shock for a few years. And then, um, and it's still unpacking it all because it's central to your core identity. Um, and uh, I just found it uh, deep, deeply unsettling. And it's taken me years to get my arms around it. I hear you. And so I, I will go a step further. I mean, you know, I think when I say my life has kind of been out there, uh, you know, in terms of my health struggles, I mean, I think it's when I when I first went to Walter Reed for when I went there for a month, just about the you know the traumatic brain injury that I suffered. I remember talking to a 
either a psychiatrist or a psychologist and kind of going through stuff. And, and they said, you know, we probably need to see you for maybe a couple of years. I mean, that, you know, so I, it was, it was, it was so much trauma in terms of, you know, my feelings of, of betrayal from the organization. Um, but also, uh, uh, it, you know, exactly what, you know, what you said there is all of a sudden my life is splashed all over the front page of every paper. I mean, I mean, even, and, and I know you've experienced this walking through an airport, people come up and talk to you. Um, it's strange. We this was not what we are used to. You don't, you know, you are supposed to be in the shadows, particularly with you know Valerie, your old job where you were, you know, had the kind of not just you know the the, the kind of cover that I had, U.S. government, but even the deepest cover, which is non official cover. And so, my God, what a what a what a transition. And there must be something in our common personality traits that we do not seek um, any sort of outside recognition. Um, that is not important to us, um, which is not to say you don't want an attaboy from your, you know, your boss. Hey, good job there. Right. But there's, um, I had no desire whatsoever to be a public person. And it wasn't until, as I mentioned, where I was involved in that movie countdown to zero and other issues that I cared about postpartum depression being one, cause I, I went through that. Um, that I thought, all right, you know, I'll use my voice as you are using yours to talk about things. I mean, you're, you advocated not just for healthcare for you, but for everyone else that was in a similar situation. And so that's, I suppose, an upside to it, but it, um, it, it marks you. It really does. And, and as you noted that, sense of betrayal from an organization that you and I serve loyally. We gave it our best. You give it your life. And um, it, it was not returned in full. Well, I think, uh, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, you and I will remain friends is, you know, we've kind of gone through this together. So I, I am inspired by your journey and how you have come out um, uh, uh, from this for sure. And so let's just jump in quickly uh, to something that, that you did. And I, I would say that I'm glad that you, well, maybe I'm not glad, but perhaps it's a blessing. You were unsuccessful, but that's your run for Congress. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. And so good Lord, the dysfunction that goes on on the Hill today, but you did, you know, you did, uh, uh, kind of take another step or, or, you know, a stab at public service. And, and again, that's, that's the notion of doing something that's greater than yourself. So talk to us about that. Talk to us about that run. What was that like? Well, d- despite all the things that have happened, I still clearly have an idealistic streak. And when this seat came open in northern New Mexico, where I now live, um, I thought, I can do that. And I want to serve my country. And I think I can do a good job at it. So I ran with heart. I ran with integrity. Um, I lost the primary. And uh, so that was in 2020. And of course, where we are now in our, our public political discourse, it is so... Um, I, I've, I've been through the war already, uh, the partisan wars. And I'm really, as I found out, I'm, I like policy, right? I, you want to try to make a positive change. Doing it in the political arena is, um, just as well for me that I, I did not win. And I turn my attention and energy elsewhere. I, to be honest, maybe it was a little itch that I had to scratch. Well, let me try running for office, you know? Um, uh, yeah, it deeply disappointed on one hand, on the other hand, I actually have a real life. There you go. And you know, as I, as I kind of think about friends I have on the Hill, I don't know any one of them, any members of Congress who are actually happy 
And you certainly yeah. see that with some some retirements. Could you? Because you have to be constantly in battle mode, and it's so personal, and it's pervasive, of course, with the amplification of social media. And heaven forbid you you be human in a moment. You make a mistake, or you say something dumb, or you know, <laughs> as we all do, uh, it's amplified and then thrown back at you, and you can never recover. And it's just ugh. Yeah, it's it's. So so this is the point in the podcast where we have to say goodbye to our guests who are not yet subscribers. If you <laughs> want to listen to the rest of this podcast and to all of our other shows in full, just go to the DSRnetwork.com uh, and click on membership. It's only $5 a month and it brings you a lot of great bonus content. So if you're not a subscriber, we hope you will be one. And if you are one, stand by. We will be right back in a moment. <laughs> 